Would you please remain standing and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? This morning we're going to be going through verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Peter writes, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we get to do here Sunday mornings. That while we sing, while we dig into the word, while we take communion, while we give, Lord, while we serve, Lord, that it would all be a worship to you. And Father, now as we, as we break down these verses, Lord, we pray that you speak, that your spirit work in us. Illuminate the gospel to us, Lord. Show us your son. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of your word. Lord, but again, that you right now would speak to your church through me. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. On December 26th of 1961, back before the Super Bowl was called the Super Bowl, the Green Bay Packers faced the Philadelphia Eagles in that year's championship game. And it being 1961, it's an old-school football game, very different than the, the high-flying offenses we watch today. So it was a close, low-scoring affair. And eventually, the Eagles would go on to win that game after the Packers blew a fourth-quarter lead. And the Packers, like any team that would go to a championship, like a Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, anything, would be disappointed to lose. They made it so far, and yet they failed. But as the story goes, that after the offseason, they regrouped at training camp, ready to take the next step. They knew they had the talent. They'd already made it to the game. They had a promising coach in Vince Lombardi. They felt good about themselves. They thought, all right, we just got to add a few things, add some new plays, learn a new tricks, get to the point where we are going to be winners. And as they sat there before their coach in training camp, waiting to hear what they could add to, the next, to their game, where they could take the next level, Vince Lombardi is said to have stood before those men, experienced football players, and said, gentlemen, this is a football. Right? It's a funny thing to say. It's a little random. You're thinking, right, these men knew what they were doing. They were experienced professional football players, and Vince Lombardi stood before them and said, gentlemen, this is a football. Vince Lombardi knew who they were. These weren't three-year-olds who had never seen a football. These were grown men who had played the game that were in the championship game the year before. But he was a man obsessed with fundamentals. He understood that the fundamentals, the basics of the game, are how you build upon the game. And this team, in fact, because of Vince Lombardi's obsession with fundamentals, would go on to win the championship the next year, 37-0. to And they would win five of the next seven. And this would be their only playoff loss under Vince Lombardi, who's considered the greatest coach of all time. And the reason I tell that story is because of what Peter does over and over again in this epistle. He goes, or I'm sorry, 
It's what he does over and over again in his epistle. As Vince Lombardi stood before experienced football players and told them, this is a football, so Peter stands before Christians and says, Christian, church, this is the gospel. We see Peter do this throughout the epistle. He goes back and forth from the fundamentals of Christianity and how we should live, how we should apply those fundamentals. And as he does so, we can see how they go hand in hand, how they're interwoven. We can begin to see how what what we know about the gospel pours out in how we live. About a month or so ago, Andrew preached on verses 11 and 12 about how the passions of our flesh wage war against our souls and how we are to abstain from them. He also preached on how we are to live among unbelievers, outsiders, honoring God and pointing to Christ. And then after that, Leo preached on verses 13 through 17 on how we are to think about politics and Christianity, how we are to submit to even the worst of governments because God sovereignly appointed them and put them there. And it glorifies him when we submit to and honor our politicians. And then a couple weeks ago, Raymond broke down verses 18 through 21 and showed us how we are to act in the workplace, how we, to, how we are to honor and serve our employers even when they are bad ones. And the next week, I believe Dan Marino is going to be preaching, and he's going to be digging into the first verses of chapter 3, and he's going to be talking about marriage and family life. Right? Peter's hit a lot of application. And one thing that we tend to forget while we preach through a book over a span of months and months, or even when we're going in our personal reading and we see the chapter headings or the section headings, we break these passages down and make them individual. But Peter didn't write it that way. He didn't put those chapters in there. He didn't put those headings in there. He made it as one letter with each theme interwoven, connecting to the one before it, to the one after it, supporting each other. So Peter's intention in addressing our spiritual discipline, how we live amongst outsiders, how we think about politics, how we work, how we live in marriage, and so on and so forth, is not just to go through a bunch of bullet points and hot topics, but it is to show how Christians live. And as he does so over and over again, giving us this application, he grounds it in the gospel. So today, as we come to our text, and in the midst of all this application we've seen over the past month, and which we'll continue to see, Peter takes a moment to ground all that application in the gospel. He grounds the truths in the gospel, and he says we live this way because of the gospel. He simply says, Christian, this is the gospel. This is exactly what Peter says at the end of uh, Raymond's text from last time, where he goes in verse 21, where Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And there's a couple things to note here. Peter goes from talking about Christians honorably suffering at the hands of their government and honorably suffering at the hands of bad slave masters or employers. And he says, to this you were called. Not only is this a fact of life for these Christians and often for us, but God has an intention for us to live a certain way in the midst of all that. Peter's point in addressing us is submitting to wicked politicians or bad employers and those who oppose Christianity is to say that we do so because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus suffered for us, and we are called to suffer for him. Peter says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And the word here used, right, example, the Greek word was actually used to explain somewhat of a template, right? Children learning the alphabet, learning to write, would have a template that they would trace over, and it would help them learn to write. 
So when he's using the word example, it's not simply just saying that we look at Jesus' work and we take a few pointers from it. We take some advice from it. But it is the very thing which we trace our lives upon. His example is not just a recommendation for how to think and act. It is the very thing that saves us and defines how we think and act. And now that my intro is done, we can get into our, our verses today <laughs> and see how Peter, what Peter has in mind for us when he says, we look at Jesus, take that example, and follow in his steps. We begin in verse 22. Peter writes, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter wants Christians to have a right understanding of Jesus in the gospel and how it affects how we live. In explaining the suffering of Jesus, Peter makes sure we know that Jesus was sinless. That while Jesus suffered injustice at the hands of wicked men who hated him, he did not commit any sin. Earlier in verse 20, Peter asks a rhetorical question and then provides the Christian alternative to that question. He asks, for what credit... Is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Right in the context, he was writing to slaves. And he says, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Right, the obvious answer is none, no credit. We don't get any credit for suffering the consequences of our sins or our wrongdoings. It's like a child who gets disciplined for, for doing something wrong, for stealing a toy or biting a kid in cakey and they get disciplined for it, and then expecting a reward for accepting that discipline. Imagine, I'm sure some of you parents have probably experienced this, experienced this, where your child does something wrong. They hurt someone, they steal something, they break something, they lie, whatever sin, right? And you as their parent have the responsibility to discipline them. And that child, while you're disciplining them, accepts it. They can say, okay, I did something wrong, they take the discipline. But then afterwards, when it's all said and done, they're like, hey, mom, dad, wasn't I so good at taking that discipline? Maybe I should get dessert or that toy I really want, those new Legos, whatever. That's not how it works, right? We don't reward them for accepting their discipline. It's not like, or another example, let's say, a murderer is convicted of the crime, put in jail, and then afterwards, we're like, good job for enduring your jail time, here's a free house, right? No. We do not get rewarded for accepting the punishment and penalty of our sins. And as Peter asks this question, right, it's rhetorical. Obviously, the answer is no. There is no credit to it. But then Peter tells us what the call is for the believer, the Christian alternative to that. He says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter says, if you suffer for doing good, if your commitment to biblical ethics and gospel-centered thinking leads to you experiencing suffering for those convictions and suffering for an unwillingness to sin, and you endure it then, that it is pleasing to God. An example I, I was thinking of while writing this is, I don't know if, how many of you know Angela Wormis. She is one of those people who serves this church in so many unseen ways. And if you do know her, go thank her. She is a, she's a rock here. But Outside the church, Angela spends time working for the pregnancy center. And I remember a couple years ago at community group, Angela brought a prayer request about the pregnancy center. She said a law was up for vote. 
And this law would require any such organization to provide necessary info for an abortion if someone came in seeking one. And the Pregnancy Center, being a Christian organization, holds to the biblical conviction that abortion is the murdering of a child bearer, or an image bearer of God, that abortion is a sin. And this law, if passed, would have required them to comply. It would say that if you want funding or if you want this, this status, then when a woman comes in seeking an abortion, you must tell her where she can go find one. Pretty much there would be legal ramifications for them refusing to sin in that moment. If they decided, no, we will not tell this woman where she can go to get an abortion because God says abortion is murder and we want to help this woman find a better way. Then, there could be, then that woman could sue or the government could come down and cause issues for that organization. Right? That would be suffering for good. And God says that is pleasing to him and that is an honorable thing. And this can happen to us in many ways, right? Maybe we don't get a promotion because we refuse to lie and cut corners at work. Maybe we don't get to make that extra money because we're unwilling to, to cut those corners. We see now, even today, Christian businesses getting sued or shut down because of their unwillingness to comply to the sexual and moral revolution. And Christian, the day may even come when a Christian organization or a church will lose tax-exempt status because of a refusal to comply with that and because of their biblical convictions. And Peter says that when that happens, endure it for the glory of Jesus because Jesus endured it for you. Jesus was sinless in all that he did. He lived a perfect life all the way to the point of his death and even at the hands of the worst type of injustice and suffering, he remained sinless. So Peter says, follow that example and do not sin when you experience suffering. Peter then goes on to say, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And here, Peter reminds us of Jesus on trial. His betrayal at the hands of his disciple Judas for some quick cash. Him being arrested, taken before chief priests and religious leaders. There he is mocked, spit upon, slandered, beaten, and then he's taken before Roman officials where he's again arrogantly interrogated, mocked more, and sentenced to death. But before being crucified, he is led to be flogged. And history tells us this flogging would be a gruesome and painful event where he'd be beaten with a leather whip. And this lip would have metal and bone shards in it interwoven that would cling to his skin when hit and then tear away flesh, exposing bone, and intestine. And often this was bad enough to kill the criminal. Yet that's not where it ended. Jesus is then mocked more, a crown of thorns put on his head, led to Golgotha, and hung on a tree. And even while he hangs there, they mock him, revile him, and Peter says that in all of that, Jesus did not lash out. He did not get angry and respond. That as Jesus experienced all that suffering and injustice at the hands of men, he did nothing in response. 
Contrast that with us. Forget the, the suffering for honorable reasons. How many of us to this week have passive-aggressively lashed out at our spouse, our coworker, our boss, a family member, because of something that we perceived as wrongdoing or injustice towards us? How many times have we muttered some kind of threatening remark while in traffic, while being cut off or being tailgated or anything like that? How often does that happen for us on a week-to-week basis? And Peter says, follow Jesus' example. Jesus experienced it far worse than any of us, and he endured it in all humility, and Peter says he did so because he was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew this was the plan. Jesus knew that none of this was outside of his Father's control, that everything he was going through, everything he was experiencing was appointed sovereignly by God that he would go through it. It doesn't mean it was easy for him. It didn't mean it cost, it didn't cost him anything. Think of Jesus in the garden, right? Crying out to God the Father, sweating literal tears of blood in agony, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus endured it all because he entrusted himself to God the Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Because he knows that God judges justly. And so when we experience suffering, when we experience wrongdoing, we are called to follow Jesus' example, entrusting ourselves to the Father who judges justly and not reviling in return, not threatening in return, not lashing out and responding in anger. The ESV study Bible commentary applies this to Christians, and I think we have it out on the book table over there. I'd recommend getting it. It's a great resource, but here they apply it to Christians saying, likewise believers, knowing that God judges justly, are able to forgive others and to entrust all judgment and vengeance to God. Every wrong deed in the universe will either be covered by the blood of Christ or repaid justly by God at the final judgment. We are to follow Jesus' footsteps when we suffer, entrusting ourselves to God, knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that he is in control, and that in the end he will make all things right. Next, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now Peter brings us to the cross. He brings up one of the most fundamental aspects of our theology. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. And it's easy for us to look at the physical sufferings of Jesus and get emotional about it. Right? We go watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ or Passion of Christ and see him get whipped and beaten, see him be mocked, see him go through all of that terror, and we can get emotional, we can cry about the pain he's going through. We see Jesus experience injustice at the hands of men who hated them, and it could stir something in us. But the incredible thing about the cross is that the greatest injustice that Jesus experienced wasn't his arrest, it wasn't his trial, or his flogging, or his beating, and it wasn't even his crucifixion. The greatest injustice Jesus experienced on the cross was at our hands 
when he took our sins on himself and bore the wrath that we deserved. Many men and women have died hard and painful and difficult deaths, and many of them even did so while not deserving it. But the message of the gospel is not simply that Jesus was falsely accused and died a terrible death. The message of the gospel is so much more. That God created mankind. Mankind rebelled in sin. That God was gracious. And that as history goes forward, mankind continues in that sin and lives in it and loves it. They continue to rebel against God. But as part of God's sovereign plan, as his redemptive plan, he sends his son. That God himself became man, lived the perfect life. He lived among us. He fulfilled the law of God completely. And then he would usher the new covenant in and bring salvation to mankind. That he would do so not simply by dying, not by suffering injustice at the hands of men, but he would do so by dying on our behalf and bearing our sins on him on the tree. That Jesus would take our sins upon himself and bear the full wrath of God on our behalf so that we wouldn't. Consider that injustice, church. That Jesus deserved the utmost praise because he is God. Because by him all things have been created and through him all things are held together. He deserved to be worshipped. And yet we loved our sin. So instead, Jesus leaves his throne, sets aside heaven, and condescends and becomes man and lives among us, lives the perfect life, and then bears our sins on the cross and the wrath of God that we deserve. He decided to set that throne away to suffer for, or set that, that throne aside so that we, he could suffer for us. I'm reminded of the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I'm sure most of you have heard it, most of you know it. We sing it here once in a while. But have you really thought about the lyrics in that hymn? Something that we should always consider when we sing a worship song, when we look to, to worship Jesus. What are we singing? What are we thinking about God? What are we proclaiming? And in that song, the third verse, really brings this home. It reads, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And the next verse starts, it was my sin that held him there. Church, it was my sin that held him there. It was my voice calling out and mocking Jesus. And church, it was your sins that held him there. And your voice calling out and mocking him. But the beauty of that song and the beauty of that text is that it, it doesn't end there. The story of the crucifixion isn't only that Jesus, about the suffering of Jesus, but also the victory that his suffering brings. 
The hymn's next lines are, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. And similarly, Peter goes on to say, after saying he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, he goes on to say that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus taking on our sins and our punishment has a purpose. That we would die to sin and live to righteousness. That when Jesus took our sins in his body on the tree and endured the wrath of God on our behalf, something happens to us. That in Jesus' death we die to sin. The old and sinful us who nailed Jesus to that cross, who mocked him, is crucified with him. That Jesus takes that aspect of our nature upon himself, and in return he gives us his righteousness and he gives us new life. And with that new life and with that righteousness, come, along with it comes a call to live according to that righteousness. Church, this is the gospel, and isn't it incredible? This is the core of, the theolo- of our theology. Without the gospel, there is no Christianity. Without the gospel, there is no hope for mankind. And the words in the Bible are just more religious philosophy. If we stray from this message, then everything crumbles. We are to build our lives upon it. And when Peter says that Jesus left us an example in verse 21, he is not simply saying that we should suffer like Jesus, right? We're not just taking pointers from it. But he's saying that Jesus' suffering is the very thing that saves us, and it is what defines us, and it is what holds everything together. Peter grounds everything he's been teaching us in the gospel. He's addressed spiritual discipline. He's addressed politics. He's addressed slavery and employment. And he'll go and address marriage and many more topics. But here he wants us all to know where all these topics find their meaning and their foundation. Think of the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 7. The two men who built homes. One, the wise man, built his house on a solid rock foundation. And when the storm came and the floods rose and the wind beat on that house, the house stood because of its foundation. The other man was foolish. He built his house on sand. And when the storm came and the floods moved in and the wind beat upon that house, that house would fall. And think of these two builders. Both men built homes. The problem wasn't the house they built. It wasn't how many rooms they had, how big their lanai was, right? It wasn't the house that was the issue. It was their foundation. So it is with us. Peter has given us a lot of application so far in this epistle, and he'll continue to do so. In a sense, he's given us building materials. He's given us things to build a house. a lot of good moral advice, a lot of ethical principles. But the question, though, is not whether or not we follow those, but are we grounding those in the right thing? Are we grounding that in the, in the, in the rock that is the gospel? Living a comp- uh, simply according to morals and principles and ethics isn't the problem. Right? We can get two people in a room, a Christian and anybody else. Take your pick. 
a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, an atheist, anybody. And I'm sure they can come to some agreement on some ethical and moral principles. Both might agree that murdering is wrong. Both might agree that they shouldn't steal or wrong their neighbor. They might even look at this list in, in First Peter, looking at politics and employment and marriage, and they might have some consensus there. They might agree somewhat about it. But that's not the issue. The issue is what that material is built on. Are all those principles, ethics, and morals grounded in the gospel? Because when they are and the storms of life come, the house will stand and it will remain regardless of what beats up on it. But if it's built on sand, then it'll get swept away. It'll crumble. If we do not start with the gospel as the example and as a thing that we trace our lives upon, the solid foundation that our house is built upon, then it would all be done in vain and it will fail. Next, Peter goes on to say, by his wounds you've been healed. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Peter's quoting somebody. And I'm sure if you've noticed, if you look at this passage that we're going through today, 22 through 25, every single verse is either a quotation or an allusion to Isaiah 53. Verse 22, Peter writes, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then Isaiah phrases it, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then Peter goes on in verse 23, writing, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And here he's referring to Isaiah 53, verse 7, when Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And in verse 24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. As Isaiah writes in 53, 4-5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then now Peter in verse 24 says, By his wounds you have been healed. Quoting Isaiah who says in verse 5, And with his wounds we are healed. And then Peter finishes our text in verse 25 saying, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As Isaiah writes in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the reason I want to show that correlation between the two is because whenever we see the New Testament or other passages in the Bible referring to another passage, it tells us what to think of that passage, how to interpret it, how to think about it. When Isaiah writes about the character in Isaiah 53 called the suffering servant, he doesn't come out and say, all right, this guy's going to be born in 700 years. He's going to be the son of God and his name's going to be Jesus. He doesn't tell us that. And the reason we can look at Isaiah 53 and see that it speaks of Jesus is because of passages like this in 1 Peter, where Peter directly attributes that prophecy to Jesus. And now we could read Isaiah in the proper lens because of what else is revealed to us in Scripture. 
Many a Jew has read Isaiah 53 and not seen the gospel. But we can read it in the right lens and see that it talks about Jesus. Similarly, we can't do the other thing. We can't just take any passage in the Bible that we don't understand and make it mean whatever we want. We can't just misinterpret it. We can't attribute meaning to it that isn't there, that isn't found elsewhere in Scripture. Unfortunately, this is exactly what happens with Isaiah 53.5. By his wounds we are healed. Is used and abused almost more than any passage in Scripture. Many a false teacher gets up before poor unfortunate souls looking for healing and peddles this. Says, look, it says that by his wounds you're healed. Give me money and have enough faith and God will heal you. Wicked men peddling the prosperity gospel and name it, claim it theology. Butcher this text. They do it in order to benefit themselves so they could live their lavish lifestyles, buy their private jets and fly to Dubai and spend time in gnarly hotels, right? And they all do it in the name of the gospel. It's a wicked thing. Is that the interpretation that Peter has for this passage? When Peter looks at Isaiah 53 and reads, by his wounds you have been healed, is that what Peter has in mind? Remember, he's writing to, to Christians in exile, suffering for the sake of the gospel. He was just talking to Christian slaves, saying endure that slavery, even when your slave master is a terrible one. Suffer righteously. And he doesn't take Isaiah 53, 5, talking about healing and apply it to physical healing, but he talks about our spiritual identity. He applies it to our spirit in a spiritual sense. Directly after saying, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He then quotes Isaiah, bringing this verse in, saying, by his wounds you have been healed. Church, Jesus' wounds heal us in the sense that through, the, through them we die to sin and live to righteousness. They heal us in the sense that we are forgiven our sins and made right before God. We're healed in the sense that we, are de- we were dead and now we are made alive through his wounds. And directly after that, saying, by his wounds you have been healed, he goes in to say, for you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're healed in the sense that we were lost. We were like wandering sheep without a master. Confused, going our own way, scattered. But God has brought healing in his son, bringing us to himself, returning us to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The message of the gospel means that we have been saved. That we've been redeemed from our sin. We've been brought into something. That Jesus, the good shepherd, has gone after us. That he's called us by name. And he's brought us into his flock. He is our shepherd, our overseer, and he protects us and watches over us. This means that we can entrust ourselves to him. That he watches over us, protects us, and that no amount of suffering, no amount of injustice, no amount of pain that we go through in this life is outside of his control and his protection. 
none of it will separate us from the love of Christ. What a beautiful thing. And now there are most likely some in this room who are still like straying sheep, who are still wandering to and fro without their shepherd, still living in their sin. And if if that's you, you've heard the gospel this morning. That Jesus himself lived the perfect life. That God himself became man, bore our sins on the tree, the wrath of God on our behalf to save you to bring you into his flock, to redeem you, to make you his own. Look to Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He can save. He was sinless and bore the wrath of God on our behalf, that we might be in relationship with God and that we might have life and that we might live in righteousness. Repent and believe on him. And now, church, before we go into prayer, I'd like to read just straight through Isaiah 53. No commentary, not adding anything of my own, because Peter's already done that. I've preached a lot already, and I just want to read it. And church, as we read it, hear the message of the gospel in it. See your Savior, how he bore your sins, your transgressions, and how he makes us righteous. Isaiah 53, he writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made him, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, 
I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this message. That he who knew no sin might become sin, that we might know the righteousness of God. Oh, Lord, that we would never stray from the beauty of this message, that we would never stray from the fundamentals here, that constantly we're reminded that this is the gospel and this is how we live. Lord, work in our hearts. Lord, that when we build, upon, we build our lives, that we build it upon this truth. Forgive us for when we stray away from it, when we decide to build upon other things. But Lord, make us love the gospel. Stir in our hearts an affection, seeing that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, O oh Lord. As we leave this place, be glorified in our worship, that we would live our lives according to this truth, according to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.